Conor O'Keefe is a man with an incredible background from being a top-level thigh boxer and successful ultra-marathon runner which led to his incredible feat of completing Project 32 that was running 32 marathons in 32 days whilst wearing a weighted vest. Project 32 was there to teach me lessons. Lots of lessons, you know. I breezed the project. Never once did I think that I'm not going to do it. He was also the last man standing on the Ultimate Hell Week TV show. The biggest challenge of the whole thing was doubt. Right? You doubt yourself constantly. Because they want you to. We were captured and interrogated and put through kind of torture. Like, I, I actually had PTSD. I, I kept waking up thinking I was still on the show. Connor is the host of the very popular podcast, Flip the Script. Connor O'Keefe. Delighted to have you back on the Modern Warrior podcast. It's been a while. Yeah, how long has it been? It's been, it's been two years, I'd say. A couple of years, yeah. but two years, and there's been a lot that's happened since then. Mm. You have gone on to do 32 marathons in 32 days. You were part of the Ultimate Survivor series. Hell Week, yeah. Hell Week. Yep, Ultimate Hell Week. We will speak about that. Mm. And you've also become a father. I have, yeah. So... I'm looking forward to diving into these topics with you on this mm. podcast today. First of all, I would like to go back and would like you to share some of your experiences as a Thai boxer and now an ultra athlete mm. that have somewhat shaped your perspective on mental health and on personal resilience. Yeah, um, I suppose I think like uh, the term "baptism of fire" comes in comes to mind when I talk about when I think about Thai boxing in terms of like mental health and resilience. Um, it, you can go one of two ways very very easily in when you're I think in combat sports in general, and people can people never really get to delve into this. Like you know when you watch like the UFC. And you see people and they lose and you're like, oh, that's a shame. That person, like, depending on who they are, they could be going through like a serious life crisis because they've, because there's such an investment in combat sports, but also because there is this idea of besting somebody. Like, you know, this person got the better of me in a physical altercation. So there's, you know what I mean? So it's different to like football or rugby or any of that type, type of stuff. It's like, where, you know, this, that's not a head-to-head one-man versus one-man kind of type thing. So there's, for me, in terms of Thai boxing, in my in my experience with Thai boxing is, one, throughout the whole thing, I feel like I was in a very boyish state because it was very much like I was seeking approval, much like I was seeking approval of a dad or, you know, of a father or whatever. Like, it was the same with my coaches. He, he was my dad, and I was kind of seeking to be the good son and there's lots of other different facets happening as well. But one of the kind of main things was this kind of wanting to be accepted and wanting to be part of something because I had never really had that in my life. I was always, I, I, I suppose I could say I was always the outcast, but I definitely made it my business to be the outcast, to be honest. Like trust through the way that I acted a very antisocial in a lot of ways. And so... I didn't find it easy, even though I was, you know, gregarious and people thought I was funny and stuff. I never, I don't think I allowed myself to integrate into a group. I kept myself on the outside, you know? And so when I got into Thai boxing, then it was different. It was like, immediately when I got in there, I had no past. And so I got in there and I was immediately quite good at it. I had done Taekwondo as a kid, right? As loads of people do. But so I could know how to throw a punch and stuff like, you know, I knew how to kick. And I started going to set a few sessions and then it's straight away, the coach in there, Martin, like I'm great friends with still today, was like, Jesus, what gym did you come from? Because he thought I was in from another Thai boxing club because I had picked it up very easily, right? And I had also bought a pair of shorts. <laughs> Thai boxing shorts are very strange, right? But I bought a pair of Thai boxing shorts in the in Ludgate O'Keefe's, uh, which is like a, a, a sports, small sports shop inside in Cork City. It's not around anymore. And... Like, I just bought one straight away. I was, like, immediately loving Thai boxing. I got to make an investment here and buy myself some Thai boxing shorts. And he was like, where'd you get the shorts? So I was like, I bought them in the shop. <laughs> he, he was so dubious. He was like, I just fell this fucking dumb for another gym now. And I'm going to hear it from his coach now that he's after fucking leaving. And I think, yeah, I, I, I 
from from that time where I was getting these kind of pats on the back and this adulation for it was one of the reasons that started the whole positive feedback loop I had with Thai boxing, which was like, get get all this adulation, train really, really hard, get more adulation, win a fight, get more adulation, go back around, you know? And it was just in this com- constant feeding loop. But yet, because none of the none of the energies and the stuff that was pushing me was coming from within. It was actually being pulled from the outside. Um, I was always very doubtful of myself. So people would be thinking like, you're going to smash the shit out of this guy. And I'm like, really? Like I didn't have a fucking breeze because I was so, I was still stuck in the the boy who, who doubted himself and who was like, um, afraid almost to have confidence. So when I was going through Thai boxing, it was very much like a lot of my whole identity and who I was was hinging on how well I was doing with it. And that's where the mental health kind of side of it came in where I'm like, even when I was, when I would lose a fight, Jesus was fucking terrible. Like it was just, I just questioned everything my whole life. And immediately I couldn't sit with a loss. So immediately, what do you think when you lose? I'm going to get back in. I'm going to get back in and that's going to solve everything. Sure, that's just fucking putting a plaster over something that really needs to be have attention, you know? So I just did that and over and over and over again until finally it just blew up. I got knocked unconscious in in, in a tie box in, um, in an Irish title fight. And it was just, the, that was the crescendo, you know? That was the big finish for me. Like, on the outside, you're like, this guy's doing so fucking well. Like, I lost. I had Apache four fights at the start. And so I was like, right. How did we lose the last fight? We got really tired really quick. What do we do? Improve our cardio, improve improve our stamina, like start looking after our diet, start doing all the things that the lads online and the lads in men's health and all this kind of stuff are doing. Do that shit and we come back to it. And then I ran, I, I won like 11 fights on the trot, right, after that, which led to me getting an Irish title fight because I was at the top of my, my, my category, my weight category and got knocked out at that, we were like, wow, I have 11 on the trot wins and then bang. But loads of stuff happens, right? So, Thai boxing is one of those things where at the time, no idea how to process it, no idea how to learn from it, no idea how to progress through it. Stayed the same person from the day I started all the way through to like my last fight, really. Just stayed the same person in terms of like very doubtful, very much wanting the outside validation, very much wanting the pats in the back. And then I only realized as I go went through when I found when I found ultramarathon, there was about a six year gap between Thai boxing and ultramarathon. And between that uh, was chaos, fucking chaos, like absolutely chaotic. I was at 50 cent last night and it reminded me a lot of the chaos that I was going through. And when I found ultramarathon, that was when, and even when I found ultra, I started doing it for the same reasons that I did Thai boxing, obviously. And it wasn't until about 14 or 15 months into ultramarathon running where I realized, like, what the fuck are you doing, boy? You're doing the same thing again. But it wasn't until I realized that I was doing the same thing again that I had so many lessons that I could learn from Thai boxing. And it's one of those lessons is not to attach my whole identity to running. Because run because like there's times where I'm injured and I can't run for three or four weeks or five weeks and I'm like, well, what do you do then when you're left with those quiet voices or whatever? Like you know, so that's that's what kind of set me up to the point where I could learn the resilient part of Thai boxing and transfer them into ultramarathon. You know, and the ultramarathons then sort of inspired you to take on this monumental challenge of running thirty two marathons in thirty two days. What awaited best. Mm. What was the drive behind this incredible pursuit? The, at first was like, I want people to think I'm tough. You know, I, like I, I'm, that's just like, people are not going to say that usually. They're like, oh, it was just this deep, meaningful thing. It wasn't. It was like, I can do this. People probably will think this is interesting. I'm going to do it. And people will think I'm interesting. That was exactly what had happened. And it wasn't until I... I, I had started to make leaps forward, right? But I, f- I almost felt like, you're like, it's like a drug, right? Where you're like, I, I take this drug, so I have to retake the drug to have the same feeling, right? So that's what I thought with 
with with toy boxing and ultra marathon was like I feel a certain way when I'm doing these things. Like when I was in training for a fight fight camp, I I felt better than when I wasn't. And so it was the same with 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 ultra marathon. But I it want and it wasn't it was brilliant because COVID happened and stopped me from doing it, which made me really kind of like well I have a lot of time really anyway. And the second thing was. I actually had an opportunity to think about like where I was going and what place ultra running had in my life and who I was. Um, something that I hadn't really, you know, talked about to myself before. I started to really dig into that. Uh, you know, when I first started ultra marathon, it was the exact same thing. It was like, going to do this hundred mile race because uh, people will think this is really cool if I do this and, you know, it'll be interesting and people will think I'm tough and stuff. And that was kind of continuing on. But it was, it was I had started training for a 200 mile race because I just was like lumping more, trying to get, oh yeah, more achievements, more this and that. And it wasn't until I started to do that where I actually had this idea, they had this kind of epiphanal moment where I was like, you have been, you've been terrible to yourself for so long. So long. Like, if if I had allowed somebody else speak to me the way I spoke to myself, I'd have I'd be have fifty assault charges. I would would have been ripping them apart. But I can do it to myself because it's in some way making me better. But it's not. It's not making me better. It's making me way worse, and it's not having a good effect on my mental health. And when I had that thought and I try and I and and in the least cliche way thinking about it in a way of okay well if I'm my own worst enemy I have to be if I give a go not that I want to for the rest of my life be my own best friend but give it a shot and see where it goes you're thinking about things more logically yes right that's one part of being your own best friend is just thinking about it in a logical way and one of the key cornerstones to being your own best friend is don't think for other people don't fucking make up their own mind for 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 them. So like you go, he, he's leaving. And you go, oh yeah, that's probably because now that's a session two there. I could tell he wanted more or whatever, right? And you're like thinking, I'm fucking thinking for this guy now. And sure, that's what happens, right? So that, so I it's about it was about breaking habits, and and the habit was like immediately when we come through it to a setback or a failure is go fucking in on yourself and talk immediately shit to yourself, and that's was the re rewiring well you're reframing the thoughts to t hopefully turn into the point where it's rewiring to the point where you don't even have those negative thoughts anymore and you actually immediately are in the best friend persona you're sitting to that person straight away and i think that's where i am yes i will have times where i have to catch myself and kind of go well look on like you know relax you know chill out a bit but i think i had started to find that in and around the time when I initially had thought about Project 32, but I, I feel like Project 32 was there to teach me lessons, lots of lessons, you know? Such as? Such as um, the things we do are not even in, in any way as important as the reasons why we do them. So I realized that the running of the 32 marathons was just this physical, basic super understandable thing the I, the why was super complicated layered and needed to be investigated more by me and so i needed to get to a place because like i i tell you right now and i've told everybody and it's not in a disingenuous way i breezed the project never once did i think that i'm not going to do it Never once did I doubt it. Never once did I feel like, Jesus, this 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 could get the better of me. Never. So it 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 didn't teach me the way I thought it was going to. It taught me everything before I ever started. Because by the time I started, I knew I was going to finish. Because I had already thought about the reasons. And I had already thought about myself as a person. And what it meant to me to be able to do these things as well. Um... So, like, for me, it was really, really, because it's like this meta, meta, meta analysis. Like, why are you doing this? Answer. Question the answer. 
question the questions of the answer, so on and so forth. And you get the opportunity to do that when you're running like three or four hours a day, right? So that's the way I, well, like, it was this method of me to create what I would, would term like neuroplasticity, this idea where I can actually just, I, I can think about things and not bullshit myself. And that's what I was doing for so long, was just bullshitting myself, bullshitting myself. It's like, am I fucking actually talking sense here or am I just saying what I want to hear? Because what I, what, what I don't want to hear is going to challenge me and it's going to take me to somewhere where I don't know if I want to go there. But I, if, I, if I go there, we fucking go there. We like get the fucking head torch out and we look around. And so that's what I had to do. And I had to pluck out so many parts of me that were not, n- not what I thought they were. So like I'm, I, I, I thought I was doing these ultramarathon things for like, oh yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to really test myself and do all these things. No, I just wanted to show people that I could do it. That was it. And that's the basis. But when, when I realized that ultramarathon could actually be a vessel for all of these new thought formations for me and could actually help me in that way, I, I realized that it, it could be integrated with a completely different way. You know, and the why I do it now is there's loads. It, it, the why changes actually almost sometimes on a daily basis. There's an all encompassing why of like just wanting to be the best version of me, and I think an awful lot about the future self, and like where I where I'm going. You know, because we only get one of these things. Do you know what I mean? And I I suppose I want to live it the way I want to live it on on, on my terms, right? So that's let's say the the blanket why, but the why changes in so many different ways. Where I'm like sometimes I just want to grab a bit of headspace. Some days I want to think about something and it could be something as mundane as a business deal or it could be something that's like super, you know, like thinking about what I would like for my son, you know, or something like that. Do you know what I mean? Something where it's like I have a thought, like one thing that fills fills me. I don't really get anxious really, right? But something that fills me with a concern is my son starting school because I had such a horrible time in school. And, and, and that's why, and I know that that's why. I'm like, I, I, I'm feeding into, I'm becoming Connor as a child again, thinking about my boy going to school and like being told to sit, stand in the corner for three or four hours at a time, like, you know, and, and face the wall because I wasn't fitting into what they wanted from a child, you know, from a five-year-old child, you know, and I think about that and I, I'm like, that's sometimes I get into those things when I'm running and like a fucking one-hour run turns into three. Do you know what I'm saying? Where I'm like, I'm thinking about these things. I'm like, and and then it's the best friend takes over then and goes, we are going to make the best decision we can with the intentions that we have. And we're going to love our child. And that's it. And we, we'll see what happens. You know what I mean? Because I think if we overanalyze things, and I, and I am an analytical person, but if, if we overanalyze things, um, it stops us from actually just living. And that's, that's, that, that's the all-encompassing goal is live how you want to live. You know what I mean? So um, that's what it, it taught me an awful lot about questioning things, basically. The process to Project 32. The, the, the project itself was really enjoyable. I loved it. And I had a great time with my dad. He came around me for the whole thing. And that was perfectly timed because my son was born a month later. So it was brilliant, you know. So I, I enjoyed it an awful lot of it, like, you know. There's a lot to unpackaged there I feel mm. and a lot of questions came to my mind as you were going through that did you go through a, a process of actually visualizing those runs before you started Project 32 and if so is there something useful there that someone listening to this podcast today could use with a pursuing challenge in their own life at the moment there's another thing where I learned this from Thai boxing so what I would do is I'd, I'd, the, the time when you're most nervous when you're walking out to fight is when you're walking out, right? Because when you're in the ring, your fight or flight mechanisms kind of almost take over, right? And where there's, there's that, there's, it's like, um, you know, when you, when you start off sprinting, right? As fast as you can, your, your, your creatine system kicks in straight away. That's the fight or flight in a fight. And that settles down after a while because you're in the fight for so long. 
your your fight or flight can't stay engaged for that long. And then that's when like conscious thought starts to happen. And like fantastic fighters will be in that thoughtful process in the changing room before they get out to the fucking fight. They'll never be in the fight or flight state. They'll be already thinking analytically about it. And so we're getting into that. But so what I used to do was I used to play my entrance music and I used to um, visualize walking out over and 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 over again because I can't control, let's say, ne- necessarily the fight or what the what's happening with the fight, but I can control that point where I feel the most nervous. And so I'd replay that. And then by the time it comes to it, I'm really enjoying the walkout. I'm like, this is fucking what we were, you know, this is what we were shadow boxing in the kitchen thinking about. So when I came, when it came to Project 32, I'd always, uh, I, I'd re- I'd visualize taking the vest off. So I was wearing the vest with the weighted vest. I'd visualize taking the vest off. And I'd visualize and try to actually feel the vest and feel it getting lighter and lighter and lighter. And so people were like, you know, people would, would probably not be able to, like, uh, the, the differences between days was only one pound, but it was so, because I had, visualize the removal of them so much i could sit into the process of it and kind of go you know when you're when you're when you're face down with 32 days of 1300 and odd kilometers uh, it's hard not to think about all of them but yet when i was just visioning the the vest being taken off it, it allowed me to just sit into that day and just uh, just be there and kind of realize okay we got we 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 do this work and we'll come to the end of it and that's just a day. And it, it was a serious lesson taking one day at a time. So I had visualized a million times finishing in Cork as well, because I got that's why I knew I was finishing in Cork at each one. And I had always visualized it. And it's never turns out the way you, you way you do it. And it's not that it's good or bad. It's just it never turns out how you think. But I do feel if there's one nugget of advice that I can give anybody with a goal that they have is visualize the end. And let that inform what your first step is. So it depends on what you're looking to do. But I always say to, to like myself, and this is something that I took from my friend Paddy Douglas, who I actually fought for that Irish title, right? And I had him on my podcast. And he, he, visual, he says that there's a, a Paddy or a person or a version of us, and it's something I've taken on board, like 12 or 18 months down the line. And they're sitting there waiting for us to arrive. And they have done all the work and they've done everything that's necessary for them to be there. And they're waiting for us to do all the work and get to us and arrive to them ready for what they are going to enable us to do. And I think about that all the time, right? And so when I think about, like today, I've got a 40 minute run, right? So I'm on the podcast with you and I'm actually on with Pat then on my own podcast then um, after he's on with you. And I'm going out for a 40 minute run today. And I was, I was out at 50 cent and I was in bed at two o'clock and I was walking up at six by my young fella. And I was like, the future me 12 months from now is, is depending on me to do the 40 minute run. And it's such a short little run that, yeah, you could skip it. It makes zero difference to what you're doing, right? In the big scheme of things. But what it is, is just honoring the person that I'm heading towards. And that's something that I, I've I've kept in my mind when I'm when I'm when I'm trying to achieve something is like, what did that person? What does this person expect of me? And this and this person of is the is is me, my physical representation of growth. So I'm I'm trying to grow towards this person, and um, it's it's definitely been helpful for me in terms of like staying true to the goal and not be sidetracked by fucking mini quests, you know, <laughs> like, you know, trying to actually just kind of stick, stick with this, this plan. So you already know what your life will look like or who you will become in 12 months or is that a process? No, I think it's more so an ideology, right? So it's more so, um, it's more so like the person, the, the, the person who I want to be needs me to do this needs me to do this work, needs me to, um, to, to, so if I want to be this, 
then, and it's not about not being happy with who I am right now, but I do think about constantly growing in many ways, not just as a runner or whatever, but like as a father, as a husband, as a person, as a friend, as a son, as everybody, right? So I suppose, and and that's all done through the vessel of of me. I can't, I can't be a better son being, you know, somebody else. I have to be me. And that's where I, where I think about it, you know, and because I do think there's a, a line to be drawn of being comfortable with yourself, which I definitely feel like I am. But at the second part of it is knowing there's more, you know what I mean? Because if we don't think there's more in us, then what's the point? In my eyes, you know, it's like if you don't think that there's more in you in terms of um, challenging yourself, not just challenging yourself as in like, oh, I'm going to run a marathon, but challenging your perceptions of yourself, challenging long-held beliefs that you have about yourself or your life, like long-held beliefs, like the one that I was talking about there, about, about like, I hope my son doesn't have a hard time in school like I did. And there's like, is there a belief that he will have that? because I had that and trying to challenge these things because that makes me a better person. If I'm able to get to the bottom of that and be better for my son when he goes to school, that's fucking, that's a good thing, you know? So, so that's what I'm talking about. Like if I, I, that, all of that stuff is stuff that this 12 month from now me has done and I'm going to get there, you know? So that's, that's what I do. Brilliant. Moving on to ultimate hell week. Mm something I was watching as well as you were going through that process. And I was very confident from the beginning that you would be one of the last people standing, which you were. Mm. Can you share a specific moment or challenge from that week that had a profound impact on your mental and emotional well-being? And how did you navigate that compared to other challenges in the past? Mm. Um, The biggest kind of all-encompassing challenge of the whole thing was doubt, right? You doubt yourself constantly because they want you to and they tell you that you're terrible all the time. So it's very easy to doubt. So I think self-doubt is the biggest challenge that anybody's going to face in there. And then that's like, it's designed to do that because they want people that are confident and assured of their abilities in the special forces, let's say, right? For, I know this was just a week, you know, but they want those type of people. And I think just like you said there, oh, you, I was confident that you'd get to the end. I was, I was too. But my fucking God, like, you know, <laughs> you go into these things and you're like, it's going to be super hard. and I'm going to be able to meet all these challenges, but it's not hard in the way you think. It's not, it's not just physically hard and it's not just mentally hard in terms of sleep deprivation or anything like that. It's mentally hard because you have so ma- many times where you question yourself and you're so many times where you're, you're dealt the hands of uncertainty because we don't like uncertainty as human beings because it's not good for our survival, right? If, we, if we're uncertain about anything, like if we were hunter-gatherers and so uncertain about, per, you know, predator animals being around, we'd move, you know, or we'd place ourselves on a hill or, you know what I mean? We would do something that would help us survive. So we're constantly trying to alleviate uncertainty and doubt. And this is kind of something as well that probably causes people a lot of pain is trying to alleviate uncertainty. That's almost like it's an unnecessary alleviation. It's like some things are just going to be uncertain and life is just like that. And, you know, it's like, um, you know, this is another thing about uh, this is a side track here is like people that that do worry about stuff and that do super u- uber plan things are not people I vibe with really well because I'm not that person and I I know that from myself now and I accept that part of me and I accept that like that's just n- I'm not a person that I get along with and you're not you're not meant to get along with everybody um you're meant to be able to have tension and you're meant to be able to have disagreements with things I think you know, so I, I, you know, and I don't get along with those type of people, right? And I think those type of people would really struggle in in in, in the Hell Week situation because there's a lot of intuition and there's a lot of taking chances and there's a lot of 
uncertainty and lack of control. You have no control. And nothing, and there was the crescendo of the whole thing of, of lack of control was when they captured us at the end. That was my hardest time. Like from the fucking get-go, like all the hiking and all that kind of stuff, it's like, so fucking hard, but I could keep doing it. You know what I mean? Like, you know, I, I, we'd have found a way. And, and another thing as well is like, one thing was I figuring out that I'm not as good as I thought I was at like the weighted hiking and stuff. I wasn't the first person. I was the third person. So like there was, the, and, and you know, uh, uh, the first person, so it's, it, it doesn't, it doesn't, um, it doesn't lend itself to somebody who can't uh, learn on the spot as well. You have to be able to learn on the spot and you have to be able to take direction because they called me in and they were like, here, you need to shut up a bit. You need to stop talking as much. You're doing good and you're helping people, which we like, but you're not doing it in the way we like. And, if you're a type of person to take that personally, you'll be like, you'll be like, fuck you, you know? Fuck you, tell me what to do. But if you're in the fucking frame of mind where like, these people are actually fucking trying to help me improve and be better, then you'll be able to go through with it. And it's not that I was like amazing and I took it all on straight away and I revolutionized the way I acted within the, the thing, but it was something that sat with me and I was able to dig into after I left the show, which I'm very thankful for. And the idea of leadership, the idea of leading without trying to lead, you know, is a part of, um, is, is a, I think it's a part of a man as well, you know, um, that the less you try, the more you actually become the leader, you know, in, in, in many ways. Right. So I suppose the, the last one was the, the last exercise where we were captured and interrogated and put through kind of torture and, um, stress positions and uh, sensory deprivation and all these things. Like this is, like there's scientific proof that this is like meant to cause trauma, like, you know, so it did, like I, I actually had PTSD. It's, it sounds weird to say it, but I had PTSD from the show. But I, I kept waking up thinking I was still on the show. I couldn't escape the show in my subconscious because my subconscious mind was always on because we, they were coming in and waking us up with grenades and bringing us out in the nip and fucking making us crawl through muck and gravel and all this type of stuff. Like, how do you go back to, oh, my, my wife is sleeping next to me in the bed, you know? How do you go straight back into that? And I can only imagine what it's like when people go to war, you know? It's got to be insane. It's got to be incredibly horrific for that person, you know, for all people. Um, because you have that little slice of it where like I wake up and I'm, I am covered in sweat and like, I'm like to my, to my wife, I'm like, where are we? How do we get out of here? It's pitch black, you know? And she's like, what, what? what are you talking about? She's like, you're not on the show anymore. And I was like, okay, All right. I'm trying to go back to sleep. It's weird, man. It's very weird. Cause you, you cause I, I, I talked about this for a little bit, but it, it really had a, had a strange impact for a while and uh, I, cause they did, they made us see a psychologist afterwards and everything to, to check, to see were we okay? Like, you know, cause it's, it's oh, 10 hours of like listening to babies crying and uh, being in stress positions, being shouted at and like uh, being manhandled and, you know, no control at all. Like I asked numerous times, could I go to the toilet? And they were just like, piss your pants basically. And I was like, all right. So I was like, they did allow me to go to the toilet eventually, but I, but it was just like, these things are like, you know, they stick with you an awful lot longer. And I, and I, I talked about this only on my Instagram the other day. It was about, uh, when I was in that situation, I was like, literally from the fucking get go, I was like, I'm going to fucking quit. I can't fucking keep doing this. Cause I was already physically broken down. I was so cold. I lost so much weight. I lost like six kilos or something in the week, it was fucking incredible, the amount of fucking weight we lost. And I was shivering uncontrollably. And like, you know, when you start, you get the shivers, you go into a warm room, it kind of dissipates. It was fucking, I couldn't get warm because we were laying on the cold floor and I, my boots were soaking and everything. It was just fucking, it was just those tiny things were compounding this, 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 this experience. And, um, I started singing. I started going, right, why need to fucking do something here? We'll be singing a song or something like that to try and, you know, get a, some semblance of control because I hadn't had a watch in a week. So I didn't know what day or time or anything it was, the time of day it was. 
Um, and so I was like, right, okay, I'm going to just start. Give me the loot by Biggie Smalls. It's like I, I, I could fucking sing it backwards hanging up off the ceiling, right? And I started just going into it, right? And I was like, uh, you know, just rapping along the, the verses and the chorus. And I was thinking like the song is about four and a half minutes long, but it would take me five minutes really to get through it because you, you break concentration because the because the thing and you're like, where was I and blah, blah and things like that. So it would take me about five minutes to get through. And then I got, I got, I got, I was halfway through it and they got put me into a stress position. So I restarted and then I started one, got to the end, started, got to the end, started, got to the end. And but I, in and around the time, the end of the third one, they changed me around. And I was like, okay, it's anything. Then I started again. And then I did three songs and they changed it again. I was like, okay, well, obviously they're changing the positions every 15 minutes. That's what I thought in the, th- in, the in, in this fucking thing. It's like, right. So four of those is an hour. Let's do four position changes and then we'll see if we want to quit. Right. And so then if I did the four and I came to the end, it's like, do you, could you do another hour? Yeah, I could do another hour and so on and so on. And then it just, we got to the end. Basically, you know, so it was, and I thought about it from the first fucking minute. I'm not going to stand here and go, I know I was fucking grand. Everything was going gravy with me. I thought straight away, I'm going to fucking pack this in. I thought loads of times I'm going to pack this in um, because it was really hard. And it was, you kind of have the sense that something is happening to you. Um, deeper level stuff, like you are going to experience a bit of PTSD. You know, I, I could feel it like, you know, so I could feel like I was uh, edgy and like beyond edgy, you know, and I was really like, like they would put your hands on you and you have the the mask and the and the the babies crying on they put your hands on you and you're, you fucking you it's not like a oh you know it's a fucking like you think someone's grabbing your soul out of you you know and i was just i felt so really heightened stress and uh so i was like just fucking give it another hour and then we did four position changes again and then they'd have a kind of a bit of a breakup. So they'd break, they'd take off your mask and take off your thing for a second. And I was like, okay, how do I make this last as fucking much as possible? You know, I don't want to go back to this fucking sensory deprivation and you're there just talk, they're talking to you and all this kind of stuff. And they didn't play this on the episode, but like, um, we were, our front was that we were an environmental group and the boys are like, the boys are like, uh, who the fuck are you? Blah, blah. And I was like, here lads, I don't even know who ye are. Right. And I go, I was like, we're an environmentalist group. Like, you know, like we're fighting a common enemy here. You know, in my mind, I said to them, like, because I didn't know. And then they were like, what are you fucking on about? It's like, we don't give a shit about what you're doing. It's like, you don't care about the environment. <laughs> like, you fucking, you guys don't care about the environment. That's what I said to them. Like, I was just trying to fucking like, I was, well, for me, I was like, let's build common ground with these people. Do you know that? That's what I was thinking. So I was like, let's fucking try and make some sort of, uh, uh, a, a, yeah, a commonality, you know, so we could get down on this and chat, you know, but they didn't want to chat. They wanted to shout at me and stuff. And it was, it was really fucking real. You know, it's like you, you do from the nearly the get go, you forget you're on a show because you don't really see the cameras. You're like, there's like cameras panning and stuff. Sometimes you see them. Sometimes, most of the time, it's hidden cameras and stuff. You don't have a fucking clue what's going on. So, and the lads are very real. And the, the thing about it is they continually break you down. Uh, even in the times when you're not doing anything. Or like, uh, um, you know, like they just, they, they, they have a great way of like, just picking at you without doing anything. Like, uh, like when I was fucking... Um, when we were, did the, one of the first exercises and someone said, Connor, you'd make a great DS. And they took a real offense to that. And so they, um, they went, uh, they went down to, we went down to the bottom anyway and made me do all the DS stuff and put people through the stress positions and stuff, which they knew if they look at me as my character, they knew that would really irk me, you know? So they know you, you know, cause they're very good at sizing you up and very good at seeing who you really are, you know? Um, and I think that's what makes them great at what they do as well, is their ability to n- get inside of people's heads. Um, because if you're able to get inside an enemy's head, it's a huge advantage to you in a combat situation. So, you know, obviously they're going to be great at it. And I, with all of that said, I'm super thankful for that experience. 
Um, because like I, I said it to the lads number of times when we were in the billets, it's like lads, people would pay 50 grand for this. There are, there are lads with mad money out there that want to see what, you know, to, to go fucking deep, as deep, as deep as they can fucking go. That would pay 50 grand to go through this week course. They would. We're getting it for free. That's what I was thinking about in my head. Um, and it definitely made me question lots of things. And it made me, uh, it made me realize that I am strong in certain areas, you know, and that I can, and I have, I have a good ability to, um, like one of the things was the, the when they, they ask you to score yourself, right. And they ask you to score everybody else. And, and most people had scored me the highest and I had scored myself the highest out of all the people. But that's not in a big headed way. It's just that I wanted to let them know that I believe in myself and that I could believe I could do it. But I, and I think that they thought that too, but they wanted me to think they didn't think that. So that's, that's because they want me to question myself and they want me to doubt myself because like, oh, this guy's confident. Let's make him doubt himself at every fucking opportunity. And that's what I'm very grateful for is that they did put me in the position to doubt myself so much. And, uh, it really allowed me to actually question fucking areas that I had flaws in and that I was shit at and, and, and learn from it as quickly as I could in that week. And then also allowed me to know that I have ability and I'm a capable person, you know? So it was, it was, it was a mixed bag, like, you know? Yeah. Very interesting week. I really enjoyed watching it, but, uh, you weren't selling it to me now, I have to say. Yeah, no, <laughs> not a great holiday. No, no Santa Panza now be more white than a gig. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and from your own personal experience, how have, we're sort of diving into the topic of masculinity here because you've been immersed in situations that are, quite masculine with a mm. tight box and ultra running, I suppose, as well, with the Hell Week. How have the societal expectations of masculinity influenced your own journey or your own mental health journey? I don't think that this is touched, uh, that, uh, that I have really thought about that too much, to be honest, right? And that's just being honest about it. I, I, I don't think I, like, when I, I, I openly talk about things that, you know, uh, that everybody does feel like, you know, in terms of men and whatever, like, you know, loving my son and, um, and, and feeling, you know, these beautiful feelings towards him and all of that. I, th I think that's such a, like, that might be something that you would say is contrary to masculinity, but I think it's probably when I feel most masculine. I probably feel most masculine when I'm taking care of my family, you know, and when I, you know, when, I, when I'm like changing my son or um, I'm looking after his needs and I'm, there for him or I'm there for my wife and I'm, I'm, you know, not even that I'm helping her with problems, but that I'm just there as a soundboard and that I'm, or times when I do things for her, it's probably one of the times when I feel like I'm at my, at most at peace. Like, so if I say, if I know that Mel has to get some work done, I'm just like, I'm going to grab the young fella there and we'll go for a walk and we'll, we'll walk the dog and we'll go to the playground and stuff and just give her the house and a bit of space for herself and then come back and then we'll have a cup of tea and stuff. That's the times where I feel like I'm the most, uh, where I feel like I'm, I'm a man the most, right? For me, um, not so much like beating the shit out of somebody in a ring or um, getting beaten up in a ring or running ultramarathons. For me, it's like those things are gender neutral in my mind in terms of like, you know, uh, like men and women are, that's a common ground. Whereas I think the roles we play are different. Uh, you know, whereas like the role I play as a man in the house is different to the role that my wife plays as a woman in the house. Uh, and that's, some people be, might be like, oh, you know, men and women are the same. They're not. They're not the same. And if they were the same, life would be so much different in my eyes. So I think that, and that's, that you know, and I, I think, you know, even talking about men's work and masculinity and like even what I do with Crewman is like, I want men to be better for themselves and I want me to be better as a man for myself. But I'm also better to every woman in my life if I'm a better man. And, and masculinity to me, and you actually had said toxic masculinity at the start. I have an issue with the, with that term. I, I don't like that term because I don't think masculinity is the problem. 
I actually think that the lack of it is the problem. Where if, because masculinity to me is accountability, integrity, honesty, compassion. Those are masculine traits to me. If you have integrity and you have accountability to yourself as a man, you're dependable, you're loyal, you're caring, you're loving, and you're kind to you and your and, and everybody else in your life. Right? If you have that, if you have the cornerstone of it as a, of integrity, and integrity is being who you are even when no one sees it, and being who you are even when it's less, it's even when it's more difficult and it's less favorable to you. That's to me is you could you could you could go down the lines of almost stoicism in in many ways, but I think integrity wraps it up well for everybody. And it's not that women don't have integrity. I think women do have integrity, but I feel like it's the lack of that in men. It's the it's the expediency and meaninglessness that they endeavor in is that the problem. Um, and I maybe like you could you could what 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 people have come to label as toxic masculinity is actually the lack of masculinity, the lack of the ability to sit into your own power as a man. And, and when I say sit into my own power as a man is sit into how I can affect change in my life and my, my, my loved one's life. That's my power as a man is to be a good father, to be a good husband, to be, a, 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 but to be first and foremost good man to me because you can't give what you don't have. So if you don't have love for yourself and you don't have respect for yourself, how are you going to love and respect the other people in your life? So, yeah, I, ma masculinity to me is something that I actually haven't really ever thought about consciously as whether I should or shouldn't portray myself in some way. Um, I wear my heart in my sleeve um, and I never stop doing that because that's just who I am. And like I will make jokes and have the crack and like say funny, stupid stuff on my page. But it's like that that's who I am. But that doesn't mean that I can't be really serious. And like, you know, when I'm dealing with mindset uh, coaching clients, be like try and enact real change in these people and be very serious about putting plans together for people to run ultramarathons. That's those things are not mutually exclusive. I, I am who I am and I'm this fun loving character because that's who I am. But I'm never going to hide that because I think, oh, what if potential clients saw me like this? If I ever started to think like that, I'd stop what I'm doing because it just wouldn't be fucking worth it to me. If I have to hide who I am, it just would not be worth it to me. So if I, so I'm always going to be that person who's going to fucking just, if I see something that I think is funny or I see something that I think is interesting or whatever, and I'm sharing it on my story, I never once think, would this do me out of clients or would this make me look a certain way in people's eyes? Because frankly, outside of the four corners of my house, I couldn't give a fuck what anyone thought of me, really. As long as my wife and my son and my dog think I'm a good person, that's fucking it for me. You know what I mean? And, and I've got high standards for myself, but not out of a, you fucking, you, you, you slob, you have to fucking buck up and do better and blah, blah, blah. It's a, you are really capable. And you're a fucking, you have a, such a good mind and you have an, an amazing ability to do things. So do it, you know, be true to yourself and do it and be there and be the person you actually fucking talk about on online, you know, be that person. If I ever, if that's another thing, if I ever stopped being the person that I say to people that I am online, I'd also stop this shit too, because it wouldn't be worth it to me because that. I would feel such guilt out of that disingenuousness because there's so much disingenuousness in, in, you know, the social media sphere that I'm like, I'm only ever going to talk about how I live and talk about how I go through things because it just doesn't make, just doesn't make it uh, uh, sense to me to not be who you are, you know? Brilliant. And you have your own podcast as well. I do. Flip the script. Mm. And as a host of this podcast, what is one question or topic that you wish more interviewers would ask that you haven't had the chance to discuss yet? Mm. And why is that important to you? Uh, so what do you, th something that I think interviewers should ask me about or 
uh, or uh, Mo- uh, or me as an interviewer? You as an interviewer, a bit of both. Okay. So um, questions that are not being asked or conversations that are not being had as much mm. that you feel are important. Um, things that I find uh, very useful when I'm trying to get to know um, when I'm get, trying to get to know clients, right? Because that, that's this is because it, it's the same thing that I think is very interesting when you're interviewing somebody is a lot of the reasons why um, people are doing things. This is more psychology or psychotherapy almost than coaching, right? But it is there. It does play a role in the coaching sphere for me and into interviewing people on this is your childhood, your relationship with your mom and dad, right? So that's that's where I think uh, a lot, where I kind of go to sometimes with people is like, tell me about your childhood. Tell me about who you are, how you're, you know, what's your family like? Because I think that without me even knowing is still affecting my life today. You know, it is. So um, I think, and, and it, it, there's a serious, um, like when you accept that, uh, it, 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 it frees you up a bit, you know? So um, I think if you were to, because people usually um, would start, like, like even today we started around Thai boxing and stuff, but I think the foundations for who I was who I was, what I was seeking from Thai boxing happened when I was like fucking two or three or four or even before two even, right? So like, um, uh, yeah, no, like I suppose, like even just from myself, right? Um, now my mother probably going to hate me now for this, right? Right. But, but she's a psychotherapist now herself, right? So she's actually qualified as a psychotherapist in her, in later life. She's qualified but a few years and, we we talk about these things because it's an open forum. It's not. It's not. There's. I don't hold grudges because people people act. She acts how she acts because of her life as well, right? So, one of the things was my mother um, found it very hard to control us, me and my brother, especially when my dad was overseas, right? So, and she's not. She doesn't have a high a good stress tolerance. She has a far better stress tolerance now. Way better. She's definitely uh, like benefited hugely from actually going through the process of becoming a psychotherapist. And she even said like, if she never took on one client, she's already better for it. Right. And she's an amazing woman. And and like to, to go back into college after like she had left leaving cert in the fucking early eighties and then to go back into college only six, seven years ago, it, it, I, I found amazing anyway. And so, but one of the things that uh, my mother would do sometimes on the odd occasion was she'd leave the house, right? So my me and my brother would be fighting and I'd be eight, maybe my brother's 10 or I'm seven, he's nine or whatever. And she'd be like, I'm gone. And she'd leave. She'd drive away from the house. And I didn't know it at that time. I was I, I found it really distressing. Like as a child, I found it really distressing. I, I could, like, when I think about it now, I'm like, I couldn't imagine doing it to my son, you know? But I think she probably couldn't imagine doing it to me now. She gave me because she knows the ramifications. So I think that uh, because like that, that's one situation that that kind of stands out for me as this kind of a thing where I I I had this um, and it, it it entered into my relationships with with women as well. Was this was this a fear of of abandonment or fear of rejection? Rejection was a huge thing for me. And no, it's like, uh, like, you know, um, even going back to Hell Week, like you do feel a bit of rejection when these guys that you look up to, these, these DS, because you look up to them before you go on the show, like, and then you go on to the show and you're, they're there. And then they're, 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 they're pulling you apart and telling you you're this and you're that and you're useless, that you have to actually, this is something that I thought about was like, you know, it's not a rejection. It's a, this is a process, you know, and this is a, a normal process of what's going through it, but it could easily, tr- it could easily trigger somebody who's had similar um, uh, experiences that I've had into thinking about rejection and then quitting and then leaving the show. Right? So I, I definitely think that might've happened to people. I don't know, but I think a lot of the reasons why I've pushed myself in certain different ways as well has, has to do with with these experiences as a child, 
you know. Um, uh, and I think it's like, I I always think, um, like, uh, yeah, like uh, last night, me and my friends were were, were uh, waiting outside the concert, and this car pulled up onto the curb, like screeched up onto the curb, and uh, a, a woman hopped out who was. Well, she was driving the car. Sounded like she was completely intoxicated. I was screaming, screaming bloody murder at two kids in the back of the car, and her friend or something was in the in the thing. She was trying to unlock the back door and slapping the door and screaming at these children. And all I could think about was like me as a child. I swear to fucking god, because my mom would sometimes just go absolutely nuts. Not to the level of this this lady, which was just a really distressing sight, to be honest. Because you're immediately obviously thinking about your own children and how they would feel, you know. You just couldn't imagine it, you know. You just, you don't, you, you, you know these things happen all the time and way worse things happen all the time. But you just, you immediately can only think about your own life and how that fits. But I thought about me as a child just being fucking terrified, you know. And so I, I and, there was, and one of the children got out. And was standing there and was crying uncontrollably. This is all happening like just before we're meant to go into this concert. Like, and all I'm thinking about is I fucking want to give this child a hug, you know, and I want to say, you know, you're all right, you're safe with me, you know, that's kind of way because that's what I would have wanted at the time, you know. And it's you know, you you have to realize that you are who you are because of your life as well. Do you know what I mean? And I think if we for, if we try and forget that. Because there's lots of times where, like, I've I, I've had these thoughts come into my head about memories that I haven't fucking tapped into in 20 years. And I've come, and, I, and I'm like, holy fucking shit. Like, it hits you like a ton of bricks. And you can be down for, you're not down, but you're like, for three days or whatever, you're thinking about this thing that's happened. And it's like, how the fuck did I forget that? You know, how did I forget that happened? So I think when you delve into that part of life with people, the rest of the stuff is just almost stuff. It's just story. You know, it's just in, in, in terms of like who you are or where you're coming from. I know a lot of these things because I've worked through this, this part of my life. And so, you know, then you're thinking about it. You're always then thinking about it in uh, through your, your, your child's eyes, you know, as a, as a father, when people ask me, about it, it was like, how, how, did, how has fatherhood been? It's like, it's been, it's been incredible for me to look into my own life and then use that to hopefully not make the ancestral traumas come up for my child. Like there's times where like you are at your wits end, you know, there's times where like my son has been sick and he cannot stop crying for six or seven hours. And it like that's a, and it's in the middle of the night. You're up with the whole fucking day. You just want this child to be okay as well, which is another thing that's stacked up on top of this. You want this child to be, to, you know, to feel safe and to feel all right. And all of these things are happening. It's hard to control your, your emotions and to, and to keep that thing. But you do. But it's easy. It's also I can see where my mother, let's say, would have lost that plot. You know what I mean? Um, if she hadn't had the tools. So I, I like I remember one time going into the pharmacy and uh, I was in the pharmacy uh, early in the day and my son was crying. He did not stop crying the whole way down to the pharmacy in the pharmacy throughout the whole thing. He was constipated. He hadn't went to the toilet in, in the, I don't know how long. I was like freaking out because like I was really not uh, like I was like, do I not go to the hospital with him and whatever? She's like, he's like, put these suppositories in now and and we'll see what go, what happens. But he he we did and he went to the, the but he would not stop crying like for ages. Went up to crumbling with him, would not stop crying, and uh, uh, kept, anyway, basically he had he had a a, a stomach. We get a, an intestinal um, infection, right? But he, he, um, like when I was in with the pharmacist, he goes, um, it's situations like this where you actually see where people actually could lose the plot. That's what he said to me. And I was like, I know, man, I fucking know. Like I'm there. And he was like, you're doing a good job. I'm like, thank you so much because I feel like this is just the fucking hardest thing I've ever done. 
you know, like way harder than 200 mile fucking runs as just actually being there for the child. And being there is not fucking taking him to the pharmacy. Being there is no matter how much he's wailing and screaming and not allowing you sleep to just go, this is a one-year-old child. This is a one-year-old child. Like you, you, because we think about this as this is another person. It's not. He doesn't realize the th- things that we realize. So he, all he needs right there and then is that protection. And I feel like I'm, I'm heightened in that because of this, because of my, my mother and my father's as well, la- uh, lack of ability sometimes to deal with home stress. Do you know? So it was like, you know, you look at them now, you look at my parents now as grandparents, you're like, what the fuck? Like, where the fuck were you when I was a child, you know? Um, but it, there's part of it too where, like, you have to kind of come to the realization that your parents are doing the best they can as well, you know, and, and they're only human beings as well. You, know, you yeah. can hold grudges and stuff and you can talk about things, but I think it's like, you have to allow people to change as well, I think, is you know, is another thing. So I if I held on to the dad that my dad was or my mom that my mom was, you know, they're, they're, they would be the first people to tell you. They were angry people a lot of the time, you know. And they, but, they, but the thing is, is they're, what, what it is, is they're not angry people. They're emotional people. And so they have a huge propensity to give love. But they also have a huge propensity to have anger. So it's this double-edged sword of like, you know, I want my, my mom was a bit colder actually really right my my dad was a very much because he came from a family he came from like a, well his mother favored him right so my my so my dad had this kind of a he has this road tinted glasses about his own childhood where everything was perfect and so but he was so he he he's always a very loving dad you know in terms of like he would he'd hug you and he'd give you a kiss in the cheek and he'd you know he'd tell you he'd love you and stuff like that right so he was doing things that you know were were really you know beneficial to us you know what i mean but also then at the other side of it fly off the handle in two seconds um you know so and that's what i i'm like it's not that i actively don't want to be that as a dad but i really hope if there's anything i ever instill in my son it's not fear i'd never want to be feared about my child because i feared my parents um at times you know and I'd never want my son to fear me. I would love for him to have a respect for me because of the person I am to him. And, you know, I'm going to be the authoritative figure in this house. He needs to know that, like, you know, this is our house and I'm the man of the house and, you know, blah, blah. But I never want to instill fear in him physically or otherwise. And that's just the way. And I, Because that was something that I hated even though my dad never beat us up or anything like that. Like, you know, he'd swing a punch into the backseat of the car if me and my dad brother were at it. Like, you know, he'd fucking, no fucking like that, like, or whatever. But he'd never, he'd never properly hit us, you know. But he, it was the threat of violence. Do you know, that was it. It was the threat of violence that really, and, and he's learned his lessons from that too, in terms of like, you know, that was just the way he was brought up too. You know, it was like his dad didn't have any other way of, communicating his authority other than that and he had it he got it in school he was beaten beat like badly beaten in school so you know he 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 comes into fatherhood then where he doesn't have the tools developed to deal with stresses that come with children and i feel like i've gotten a lot i've uh, but like even with the stuff that like would would I, I feel like a lot of people would really struggle with at the beginning of being a father, I actually really took to. Um, you know, I didn't mind actually the crying and the walking, pacing up and down the halls in the middle of the night and stuff because I felt like that's my duty, you know? And I suppose that I accepted that. That's a big part, I think, of like, uh, if I was to give, if I was, because I'm not a no master of, of one child, you know, I'm not like fucking 15 kids, you know, deep. But, if you accept your duty as a father from the beginning, I think from the fucking very moment my son came out, I accepted that I had a duty to him. And when I accepted that, I realized that with that duty actually comes so much joy. Because if you can accept that your life will never be the same again, that's a huge thing. Because I think people will fucking, I think that's what what becomes overwhelming for men especially. Because men, I think, are... I. I 
maybe I'm wrong and it, it, I would love for women to weigh in on this, but I feel like men, um, men f- feel like their independence gets squashed sometimes. And it's, I think women don't feel that as much, or at least they don't allow that to affect their lives as much. Maybe they're a bit more resilient in that way. And men aren't, don't have that resilience, but it's, if you can accept that, yes, your life will never be the same and that you have a duty for the, to this living being, to this person for the rest of your life, I think it actually fucking makes everything so much easier. In my mind. Now, it's a very, very simple thing said, very difficult concept. And I, I think from the very beginning when I, when I first took on the role of being a dad, I think the biggest thing that I could take was I have a, I have a duty above me to this person. So it's not about my lack of sleep or it's not about me not being able to do these things. It's about this being that you intentionally brought into the world now has a duty, you have a duty to that thing, you know, to to this beautiful person. And when you accept the duty of the less highlight real stuff of being a dad where you're dealing with really real kind of like, you know, like sick children and stuff like that where you're like a, a... crying, they won't sleep and all this kind of stuff. You actually, on the other side of it, if you're there for them in that time, on the other side of it, you get the times when they're first starting to walk and you're going through the, you're in the playground together and they're passing stuff to you like, hey, dad, showing you this. And it's fucking brilliant. Um, I don't think I'd have been able to get to the enjoyment part without accepting the duty part, you know? Um, maybe people can weigh in on that. I don't know, but I, I think if I accepted that my child is, needs me. They fucking need you so much and they need, I need my parents still. And I think this is another thing about like, you know, because I know people that have lost parents in their 20s and 30s and stuff and, you know, um, even people that, lo- you know, when they lose, when people lose their parents in their late 40s, 50s, when you're usually kind of meant to lose your parents, I feel like we think about this as like, a natural part of life, but at the same time, it's a, it's a huge part of your life is, is leaving, you know, the person that brought you up, you looked up to this person or you were seeking so much, you know, from this person to survive at some point in time in your life. And then they're gone, you know? So I, I still feel like, you know, my, my relationship, with my parents has grown so much, Jesus Christ, like way, like, I think the reason why I'm able to talk so candidly on this right now is because they've accepted who they are. And I've accepted who they are and they accepted our relationship and now have re- we realize that we can better it. And I see, I don't see now as like my son and my dad, uh, you know, having such a great relationship as like, a, where were you when I was small kind of thing. I, I, think, I think about it as, isn't it fucking great that he actually gets an opportunity to right wrongs, you know? Um, so yeah, maybe I got off on one there, but I don't know. Yeah, well, acceptance is the underlying current between I think beneath this whole conversation accepting yourself first as an individual accepting your role as a father now and it's almost like you've you've come full full circle mm. and you've been on this journey of self-development and self-improvement and now you're taking on the journey of fatherhood to help your son on, on a similar mission mm. and the journey continues for yourself too of course mm. so yeah, incredible conversation, man. I really enjoyed this. And Thanks, man. Thanks for, for having me on. Yeah. For anyone listening to the podcast who want to reach out to you, potentially work mm. with you, or just follow your brilliant content and follow your podcast, where can they all find you at? Yeah, uh, I suppose the hub is my Instagram, at C-O-K-E-E-F-F-E. C-O-K-E-E-F-F-E. People say Co-Keefe. I don't know. Uh, maybe it is Co-Keefe. Um, and yeah, uh, there's a link in the bio there that has all the links to book an intro call with me, to um, to listen to the podcast, whatever, um, to book onto a crewman hike, um, you know. Uh, so that that's kind of the, the HQ, basically. Brilliant. Yeah. Get on it. Thanks very much, man. Thank you very much, Connor.